On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. You may have heard the Liberals say it's going to go ahead, but will it? We expect, I think most people expect, that there are going to be attempts to slow it down, to get in the way, to blockade it, whatever else. Is this actually going to happen, and why does this or doesn't it need to happen? We'll talk about that. We're going to chat about apologies. Our Prime Minister does them a lot. Other politicians have done them before, but if an apology is made by someone who isn't the person who committed the wrong, does it mean anything? And the Toronto Blue Jays, yeah, they stink. They're really bad. I mean, they're atrocious. And it raises the question, has there ever been a time in the Blue Jays' 40-plus year history that they have been this irrelevant? All that is coming up. Don't go anywhere. Right here on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Today uh, in Ottawa, Prime Minister Trudeau and a number of his cabinet ministers announced that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to be going ahead. They are going to be building it or allowing it to be built. Something is going to be happening, but this thing is a, has been given the thumbs up to start construction. It's going to cost now $9.3 billion. That's up quite a bit from what it was originally going to be. And some people are saying it's going to be way more than that before it's done. Regardless, the big story, the headline is that the Trans Mountain Pipeline has got the okay to begin. want to bring in Dan McTague, who's the Senior Petroleum Analyst with GasBuddy.com. Uh, Dan is the perfect guy today, not only because he is an expert in the petroleum industry and the gas industry, but also with 18 years as a politician, as a member of Parliament, there is nobody who knows the two <laughs> sides of this story better than Dan Will. Dan, thanks for doing this today. Uh, Scott, uh, my pleasure. And uh, ironically, of course, the uh, intro song was... Uh, from uh, Don Henley, uh, Building the Perfect Beast, The Boys of Summer, and I think uh, The Boys and the Girls of Summer uh, have 72 days to see a spades in the ground on this project, if I'm to understand uh, what the PM uh, finally uh, admitted. And, of course, it took, uh, what, six journalists to finally ask the question, when does it begin? (laughs) Well, let's go back to the very beginning of this press conference and this announcement today. This, I think, is what most people expected was going to be the announcement, correct? You're not surprised by what they said today. Uh, No, not surprised. He had to say he, whether he was going to oppose it or whether he was going to build it. He's been saying he's going to build it. He hasn't changed from that. Uh, the question was, what was he going to do to delay it? Was he, uh, was he going to wait until after the election? To me, the most critical point wasn't simply that he approved what he's already approved, but how long before we actually see spades in the ground. Now, he doesn't want to use that term because we've heard that before, and it uh, turned out to uh, go awry. So uh, as I quite you know, pointed out in uh, the tweets that I was putting out, I uh, had a couple of the press folks in Ottawa living in the bubble weren't too happy with it, but I had to press the point. When you say uh, it will begin in construction season, pipelines are built 365 days a year, seven days a week, uh, and in all four seasons. So I really had to get very precise as to when that was going to be, because that suggested to me whether the government was going to dither and was whether it was going to wait. It sounds like, I'll take them at their word, they're not dithering. They're proceeding uh, right now. I want to get to the construction part and all that, because as I say, there are two very clear parts of this story. One is the economic part of the story. One is the political side of the story. We do have a federal election coming up in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, and again, you, you can speak to this as well as anybody. This, this was, to be fair to the prime minister, this was the ultimate hot potato with the position that he and his party have put themselves in, because it was just about five minutes ago that they declared a climate emergency, and now they have to decide whether they're going to go against the environmentalists in their party and on that side 
that say this is a horrible thing for the environment. How, how did they, how do you go ahead and say we're going to do this when you've just said this would be a horrible thing, or at least a lot of people in your party would say this would be a horrible thing? Well, you can't ride two very divergent horses. By divergent, I don't mean that we, we, we don't want to have the best of both worlds, but the reality is that the political nature of, of, of the green is to simply shut down the fossil fuel industry, whereas those in the industry clearly want to get their product to market. So he's trying to come down the middle uh, and uh, uh, win social license by doing a whole pile of other things that uh, have not gone over very well in places like Alberta. Uh, so right now, uh, the clock is running. He has to show that this is going to happen. But I suspect these are two irreconcilable uh, solitudes um, and that you will find that at the end of this, um, the protests over the next several weeks will be significant. Uh, they will be uh, obvious in your face. Uh, they're well-funded. Uh, they're well-versed. And, of course, the legal challenges have only begun. Uh, they will use every weapon that they have, including the Premier, uh, Mr. Horgan, who said he's going to use every weapon, every tool in the toolbox uh, to stop this thing. So I'm uh, I, now, of course, becomes the political theatre. Let's see if the PM means what he says and says what he means, because it's nice to talk about these things in flowery, uh, wonderful, you know, uh, uh, contextual ways of the perfect ideal society. But the reality is that you either build or you don't. And uh, now, of course, uh, the test will be when is he building? See, uh, and it has to be in 72 days. Dan, and, and you've just touched on the thing that, see, I have doubts that this thing is going to get built. And, and not I'm not doubting that the prime minister means that he is going to intend to build it, but you're going to have protesters chaining themselves to this and standing in the way and blockades, and you say court challenges and vandals who are going to try and slow the... Yep. I, it's a long pipeline. You can't protect the entire thing. You can't have the RCMP protect the entire pipeline. I don't know how it's going to get done, because I really well, do believe there's going to be lots of people opposing it in a physical way. I think he has to hire a lot more security, uh, and he has to be clear about where these people will go to jail. Um, no fooling around if you're going to block things and uh, uh, not uh, proceed with what is in the wider public interest. You've made a decision, not once, not twice. Uh, you've you've bent over backwards. Uh, it's time to fish or cut bait, Scott. And I think uh, for those who are going to be doing their protests and their you know song and dance, we had the same thing last two three years ago uh, with the uh, the Dakota uh, bypass uh, in the United States, where the previous government under Obama uh, basically allowed protesters to uh, to whipsaw public opinion and to continue protesting. A new president came in and uh, arrested them just locked them all up and got the thing done now this may not be a uh, this may not be able to happen as quickly we're talking about uh, you know something that only took uh, maybe five or six months to do but this is where of course the test comes and politically speaking uh, there are four parties uh, five parties I would call about all of them that are going to be vying for the next election uh, only two are, are determined to get this uh, pipeline through uh, come hell or high water uh, the other four uh, are mixing the message or uh, going to the extreme. Uh, the Bloc, the NDP, uh, the Liberals, and of course uh, the Greens all want uh, to have some kind of mixture or uh, of uh, environmentalism uh, with uh, getting this uh, particular pipeline done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Chatting with Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com, also a longtime MP, about the Trans Mountain Pipeline announcement today that the Liberals are going to go ahead with this. And Dan, just before the break, we were chatting a lot about the political ramifications of this. Of course, this is an economic thing, probably even more than a political thing. Uh, not going ahead would have been a huge chunk of the Canadian economy affected, correct? I mean, this is a, this is a huge economic driver, potentially. Oh, absolutely. Not just in terms of what it will generate in terms of revenue. You're talking 590,000 barrels of oil a day at 60 or $50. Uh, take your pick. Uh, uh, that's, you know, a substantial in of itself, uh, a fairly substantial amount in the tens of billions of dollars. So the revenue would certainly be there over time. Um, but more than that, it's also the attraction uh, of foreign and uh, global investments, which have fled Alberta, which have fled Canada, to the tune of some $40 billion uh, by comparison uh, to 2014, $40 billion a hmm. year. That pays a lot of taxes, social programs, uh, and pays for a lot of programs across uh, this nation. Well, and we've had Marvin Ryder on the show from the DeGroote School of Business many times talking about oil and gas and that impact on our economy and how closely that part of our Canadian economy is tied to the health of the loonie and to so many other things. This is not just the oil sector that stands off by itself. It is all interconnected. We're all paying about a third more than we ought to for everything from the food you purchase to the gasoline you purchase to the commodities, the clothes, all are priced a lot more because we price everything in U.S. terms. We've lost about a third of our purchasing power. So any Canadian who thinks, oh, that's an Alberta uh, issue or that only interests the western part of the country should think again, including provinces like our own and more importantly Quebec and others that are pretty big when it comes to uh, equalization, redistribution of wealth. Um, you know, you have no wealth, you can't redistribute. And of course, governments run into debts, deficits, and have to start to cut back on programs. I, I, I think it's really critical that people, uh, you know, understand that there is a, a significant down, uh, downstroke to, uh, to trying to suddenly say, well, we can do without these things in the world. You know, we can live without fossil fuels. It's absolutely impractical. And for Canada, it's deadly. So, you mentioned investments, uh, long-term and short-term, because obviously the stock market is probably affected by this today, but long-term and short-term, what impact will this have? Well, look, the TSX, the TSC in Toronto is really a, a mining and energy uh, composite index. It, it takes into account all the activities uh, of our resource sector, particularly energy. So it's a boon for here in, in, the, in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area uh, on the financial side, but its uh, its work is 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 pretty pretty pervasive. Um, I talked about the positive side in terms of potentially seeing the Canadian dollar strengthen somewhat once oil starts to flow. But remember, heavy oil is in high demand right now. Iran can't sell any. Uh, Venezuela is on its uh, really on its uh, hind heels. Uh, it can't get any product to market. Mexico has the same problem. The world needs heavy oil. A lot of new refineries in Asia and the United States in particular have reconfigured to take heavier oil because they can break down the the the, uh, the slates and make not only the high-end uh, petrochemical styrenes and things like that, at the low end they can also make diesel, jet fuel, and other things like that. So we have a number of advantages, but if you keep blocking pipelines, especially when it's foreign-funded organizations coming in here and agitating, uh, as sooner or later we have to uh, uh, fish or cut bait. We really have to put our first best foot forward. Oil and gas as an industry is Canada's number one industry. It uh, dwarfs automotive and steel and aluminum uh, by a, a factor of at least two to one. So even though, Dan, these th- these pipelines, this pipeline is supposed to get oil to the coast so that it can then be exported and shipped elsewhere, is, does it have any impact? Will people here in time 
see any effect at the pumps, for example, for themselves, because it's the idea is to get this gas out of the country. Well, we get oil already. Most of the oil in Ontario comes from Western Canada. It, it transits through the United States. We have a problem with one of the approved pipelines. It's going to take another year. That's creating some uh, some problems as far as getting oil into our region. But uh, I, the one thing I can tell you that no economist likes to talk about is the impact selling more oil at reasonable international prices gets for the Canadian economy. Not only more jobs, but more importantly, uh, it, it, re- it rescues the loony. We haven't seen that since February of 2013. And right now, I can tell you, I can't be an expert in every field, but gasoline alone, if the Canadian dollar were trading as it were when we had pipeline capacity up to 2013, uh, you'd be spending about 20 cents less per litre. Now, that's true of diesel. It's true of gasoline. You can pretty much take any other commodity and say, my goodness, us Canadians, no wonder we feel that we can't afford things. We're working harder for the same wage because our dollar continues to take a beating. Our purchasing power has has suffered badly. And it's something that I think environmentalists have to understand. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Either that or they can, they can find a convenient way of getting us all to pay or to support the programs out there because this is jobs, this is the economy, this is how the Canadian economy runs. And there's no other oil-producing nation in the world that is prepared to go and make these kind of sacrifices. So we've got to stop beating ourselves up. And it's not a political message, it's a pragmatic message. And, uh, you know, whether Trudeau gets it or not, uh, he says all the right things, but uh, his actions are going to have to be followed up very, very, his words are going to have to be followed up very quick, quickly with action because uh, time is running out. Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com. Always appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me this evening, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if you heard this. It was actually last week that the Prime Minister was in Vaughan doing something that he has done quite a bit of over the term of his office so far. And that is he was apologizing. He was speaking at Italian Heritage Month and he was issuing a formal apology to Italians who were mistreated in Canada during the Second World War. Now, you know that this is not the first apology for misdeeds of the past that this Prime Minister has offered up. Indigenous Canadians have been the subject of several apologies. Sikhs and Jewish refugees, uh, homosexuals, other minorities. There have been apologies. There have been many apologies. Let's just put it that way. There have been many apologies... For the actions of people who came long before, there is nobody, including the Prime Minister, there is nobody in government right now who was in government or had any position of authority or any hands on the levers of power when these actions back in World War II or other things were taken. Not one person in in all the apologies that have been given out, there is not one person in government today who was in any way responsible for the decisions for which the apologies are being made. These are post-facto apologies. And it starts to make me wonder, and look, I, we can be political all we want. We can be cynical. We can be skeptical. Uh, certainly, though, all those thoughts cross my mind. We're in election season. We can be as skeptical and cynical as we want, and some people will say the Prime Minister is only doing this to curry favor and win votes. If you want to believe that, you're entitled to believe that, and I think probably there will be many people who will line up with you and say, yeah, that's what this is. Others will say, no, 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 the Prime Minister is absolutely, absolutely honest and genuine and meaning 
what he says when he offers apologies to these people. So this is not a, it's hard to separate politics and the topic right now, but keep in mind that other politicians of other, not just Justin Trudeau, even though he does it a lot, but other politicians have offered apologies for people and and governments and whatever regimes who have gone before them. This is not unique. As I say, he does it probably more than most. In fact, I know he does it more than most, but it's, he's not the first one. He won't be the last one. But every time this happens, it gets me thinking, does an apology that comes from someone who had nothing to do with the issue, nothing to do with the wrong, if it was a wrong, does the apology mean anything? And let me go back just for one second to the line I just said before, if it was a wrong. Part of the difficulty with this is that apologies that come much later lose the context of the time in which the particular thing happened. You lose the historical context because we live in different times. We have different sensibilities, different political views on life and liberty and everything else. We, we are not living in the exact same time with the exact same external influences upon us. So it's not, you know, something that we may say, that's horrendous back at the time may have seemed to make a lot of sense or may have been part of the culture or would have been seen as very normal, certainly nothing out of the ordinary. It's very difficult to separate things, but we're trying to, apparently. But I go back to the point. If someone apologizes for something that they didn't do, does it mean anything? If your grandparents stole money from somebody and they are long dead now, they're long gone, does it mean anything to the surviving family members of the people from whom they stole the money? Does it mean anything if you turn to them and say, you know what, I'm really sorry my grandparents stole money from you? Does that, does that mean anything? Is it meaningful? Because they, you, didn't do the, you didn't do the act. You didn't commit the crime. You didn't do the wrong thing. Does that mean anything to you? I want to hear from you on this one because this to me gets to the crux of a lot of what is going on right now, that we are apologizing for things in the past. I just don't know that it's worth the breath that's being expelled to make this happen because Justin Trudeau is quite honestly guilty of none of these things. He is not the guilty party. He didn't commit any of these atrocities wrongs, crimes, whatever you want to describe it as. He committed, he did none of this. He's not the guilty party in these. And yet he's apologizing for it. Does that make any sense? Does it matter? Does it, re, does it resonate? Does it mean a thing? 905-645-3221, star 9900. I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying to be even partisan in this case, because as I say, many other politicians have done it. I just don't quite get the point. I'm struggling to understand how this makes a difference, how this does anything. Because to me, an apology is an acknowledgement of my wrongdoing to you who I have wronged. I don't know how I ask for forgiveness for something that I didn't do. That, that to me doesn't make it, we don't, lo- if that was the case, then presumably if it, that story, I just used that example of my grandparents stealing money 
well, then presumably I could be charged and locked up because I'm in the family of those grave. But we don't do that because we say, that's not your responsibility. You're not responsible for that. That's, you're not guilty of that. That goes to the grave with them. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Going to come back and take some of your calls. Does an apology by someone long after the fact, an apology by someone who had nothing to do with the offense, mean anything? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. I just want you to stay. Scott Radley Show, little Chicago for you. It is hard to say you're sorry, unless you're saying sorry, perhaps, for something you didn't do that someone before you did that you have no fault in. And that seems to be what's happening a lot with our politics these days. We apologize for stuff that happened before we arrived. But does that really matter? Does that mean anything? If it's got nothing to do with you, and therefore you have no skin in the game, no one's looking at you and saying you're at fault. See, so an apology to me, that's another thing. An apology requires skin in the game. If I apologize to you for something I did, I am acknowledging my blame in this, and I am accepting that whatever your response might be, your anger, your rage, your lawsuit, whatever else, well, that's on me. But if I didn't do anything wrong, but I apologize for someone else, does it matter? 905 645 3221-STAR-9900. I want to go to Mike. Mike, how are you tonight? Oh, not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. If, you. if you received an apology for something that happened to one of your ancestors years ago from someone who wasn't involved in whatever the problem was done to them, does it mean anything to you? Well, I don't know if it means something specific to me, but I do think you have to take in the context in which the apology is being given. Okay. Um, you know, for example, you know, what the government is apologizing for uh, to the Indigenous peoples right now, this is more or less uh, a nation um, that is apologizing on behalf of the government. So it, it, I don't think that it's one person that is responsible for it, but it is the government itself, the agency, the, the whole government of Canada. So on behalf of Canada, I think we have benefited maybe to an extent of of the atrocities that we have done. And now, you know, we have come to realization and enlightenment almost that we need to sort of say, you know what, we need to reflect and start making amends. And Mike, that's a great point. Let me jump in for one second, though, because when you apologize, then if I apologize to you, let's say I smash my car into your car and I apologize to you, there's a second part of that. I'm acknowledging my guilt, therefore I'm going to make it right. What value is there in an apology to the Indigenous people if we then do nothing to follow that up? It's, it's empty words. I 100% agree with you, and it does need to be followed up. Uh, there's no question about it. And how to follow up is the, is the you know... question. Or 65 billion. Yes, thank you, Mike. I appreciate, I do appreciate the call. We got to get to Sandy here. Uh, Sandy, how are you tonight? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Is an apology for something that happened generations ago meaningful? Uh, Yes, you know what? I believe it's the first caller. I believe on behalf of Trudeau was doing um, is for on the part of the government for all the wrongs that they've done, and him personally, because a lot of the people are probably dead and gone, and I think he's just trying to make it look or, you know, be right, and I think it's the place that he's apologizing to, I don't know if it's going to mean much to them. 
Sandy, I've got a terrible connection with you, but I thank you for your call. I do appreciate your, your, your giving us a shout. Uh, I would keep Sandy along, but I say she, her line is breaking out. Let me go to Fred. Fred, how are you tonight? Not bad. It's a beautiful day in Canada. Thank goodness. Yes, about time. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about this, Fred? Are you in I favor think, of these or no? I think that the apology has already been done when Joseph Brandt was alive. He was the chief of all the natives in this area, and Canada always... Uh, did things with Joseph Brandt. Joseph Brandt was a Mason in Canada, and uh, they uh, were the prime ministers that we had over the years have always agreed different things, and they apologized over a period of time. I think this is all about money. They, they just want more money all the time. And uh, the, thing, the thing is, this is, they get everything now free pretty well, but they want more. They Fred, like I, I, I appreciate your call, Fred. Thank you very much. Look, so here's my thing on it, and I agree. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Fred. I understand about apologizing. I really do. And, and to some degree, I agree with Mike and Sandy in that, you know what, there are some things, I suppose, that we can try to right the wrongs. It just seems to me that if those people are long gone, well, I tell you what, let me read you. You may not have ever heard this quote before. I was fascinated when I saw this. Because our prime minister right now is Justin Trudeau. You know who his father was, Pierre Trudeau. He was asked about this in 1984 in the Globe and Mail. Here is what what Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, said about apologizing for people in the past. This is a quote. I do not see how I can apologize for some historic event to which we or these people in this house were not a party. We can regret that it happened. But why mount to such great heights of rhetoric in order to say that an apology is much better than an expression of regret? This I cannot too well understand. I do not think it is the purpose of the government to write the past. It cannot rewrite history. It is our purpose to be just in our time. That's the father of Justin Trudeau, the guy who is doing all the apologies. And I got to tell you something, I agree a lot more with the father. I don't think, I believe that it's, it, it's almost meaningless for an apology when none of the people involved are around and none of the guilty parties are the ones apologizing. An apology requires an admission of guilt and the only people that can offer that admission of guilt, in my mind, are the people who are guilty. Otherwise, I think this is all rather empty, maybe symbolic, maybe sim- absolutely symbolic, but seems to me rather empty. A show more than anything. I just, I would rather have governments of all stripes apologize for the things they've done wrong rather than things people before them have done wrong. Somehow, though, all the governments seem to have a much tougher time apologizing for their own mistakes than for those of people that have gone before that really doesn't sting too much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fresh off the set, probably just sprinted from the set to his desk to be able to make this call from CHCH TV. Bubba O'Neill, sir, how are you tonight? I don't sprint anymore. <laughs> too old. Moved I, with purpose, strode with purpose. No, too big. Her knees hurt too much. <laughs> As you said, very strategic with my maneuvers. Just finding the quickest line, the shortest distance between two <laughs> points is always a straight line. As you said, with 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 the years, you get crafty. <laughs> you get crafty. Oh, you know what? I thought you were going to say crackly. Now, when I go, like when I go to the gym afterwards, the first push up or two that I do, 
I got to tell you, there are about four cracks from each shoulder and elbow and everything else. It, it, it sounds like I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, like I'm crinkling up styrofoam or something when I'm doing that. But. Isn't that, I mean, unbelievable. I'm sure there's many, uh, you know, women, men out there that are listening to us right now that can identify, you know. I, there was a time that you got out of bed, you just rolled out of bed and you got into action. Quick. Yep. But now it takes about, you know, it's like the grease has got to get all warmed up a little bit. <laughs> you got to lube the joints. Yeah. It's, yep. you know, it's just like, oh, oh boy. It's Even what, when you're anxious, it's just like, oh, oh boy. It's when you're, it's like trying to start your car on a freezing cold day. There, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm damaging the engine just by starting it. Well, that's what I feel like the first three steps out of bed now. Really Come is. on, knees work. <laughs> you know, uh, and the worst is now, for for whatever reason, if I don't drink enough water at the gym, I will sometimes wake up in the middle of the night with just brutal cramps in my legs. Oh, really? Oh, and, and now it's the point because, you know, you're getting up, you got a few years on you, I'll half asleep because it'll wake me up and I'll stretch out my calf or whatever. And in the morning I'll realize I almost tore that calf in the middle of the night just trying to stretch it out. But anyway, it's the, it's the hazards of getting old, although... Still better than the alternative. I hear you. you yes, priest. Amen to that. Yeah. I'm telling you, I just wish I didn't have any of these aches and pains. I'd be better off dead. Well, maybe not. Uh, you know who is almost dead right now, Bubba? Your Toronto Blue Jays. You were showing highlights today. I was watching. I have the TV on in the studio here, and you were showing Blue Jays highlights. And, you know... The thought that crossed my mind when I saw your highlights on there, looking at the stadium that is all but empty, it's it's oh. sad. It is sad oh. that in the span of, what, three years, they have gone from being a full stadium team that had the attention of everybody, much like the Raptors, almost everybody in Canada, to being irrelevant to the point of whatever they are right now. It's stunning how far they and how fast they've fallen. I think as an, and as a broadcaster, at least a television broadcaster, when you do, you know, when I do the sports, I kind of come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, as I said in, the, in tonight's broadcast, you got to find the little victories right now because, really, um, maybe four out of my, you know, I work five days a week. Maybe four out of five days, I could find, I could just pound this team. I could, like, you know just rip them apart for several maneuvers, roster maneuvers, performance. But you know what? It's like, okay, you know what? Kevin Biggio had a real nice game, just called up late in May. You know, I think he's hit uh, five home runs, hit two last night, you know, while playing, you know, you know, while facing one of the better players or arguably the best player in the game and Mike Trout, who had a great game at four, you know, going four for five with a home run. Um, so it's like, you know what? Those are the stories I feel like we have to start telling right now because, uh, you know, because when uh, when I do have to show the final result uh, on the eleven o'clock, it's generally not very positive, Scott. It, no, it, it, no, that's depressing. very kind. That's kind because it's been lately. It's been ten to one and twelve to one and sixteen to two or whatever. Here's the here's though what I was thinking yesterday as I was contemplating this and when I was going to talk to you about it. 1970s, when the Jays start, they're not very good, but everyone's excited about the team and still talking about them because they're you know they're starting out. It's it's all fresh. It's new. The 80s. They're building a team. They're a contender. They get to their first playoff. 90s, they win their World Series, and they are still a contending team. 2000s, they're mediocre, but they've got Roger Clemens. They've got Scott Rowland. They've got a bunch of star players that they bring in. Right. To mid uh, the 2010s, well, we know what happened in 2015 and 2016, and they had Bautista hitting 50 home runs and on and on. This, to me, right now, is the most irrelevant 
Blue Jays team of all time. I know they've got some young guys. I know Guerrero's on the team. I know Biggio's on the team. But this is an, in the sporting landscape, this is an irrelevant team right now. No, I mean, that's fair to say right now because I think at the end of the day, um, you will be just hanging your hat on the prog- on the progress of several young players. And other than that, you know, you've got a bunch of scrappy guys. Freddie Galvis is like the guys like that, you know. I mean, didn't they sign, they signed Randall Gritchick to a five-year deal, huh? Like, I mean, yeah, and you're right, because there was a love-in, you know, in 70, 77, 78, 79, 80. And they were horrible and, then. And they were horrible. I mean, there is, if I remember correctly, I'd have to look up in baseballreference.com, but I'm going to say there were, there were a number of 50-something win, win seasons. That's atrocious. But I think if you look at where the Blue Jays are on pace for right now, because they're getting very close to the midpoint of the season, um, they well could finish with 58, 59, possibly 60 victories, which would put them among that, uh, you know, that group. And, and now there's no excuses because, I mean, other than the fact that they've actually finally admitted that they're rebuilding and they have a new manager who's, you know, doesn't have the experience and is, you know, we've seen him make some rookie mistakes so far this year. Um, is irrelevant. You know, it's it's a tough word, Scott. But boy, in the sporting landscape of a Raptors team that has just won the World Championship, a blue a, a Toronto Maple Leafs team that you know could be on the brink of doing something special and his incredible attention. Uh, yeah, they they could be you know slowly slipping in that category of like. Who are they? What did they do? Did they win last night? Did they even play last night? Well, they, the Blue Jays, I just looked it up while you were talking. The Blue Jays lost over 100 games in each of their first three seasons. 107 losses, 102 losses, 109 losses. Haven't lost 100 games since that third season. They're going to lose 100 games this year. That's going to put them into the category of really, really, really atrocious with the difference again being... They don't have the new car smell on them now that allows you to still think that, okay, it's still worth watching because, you know, they're, they're new and they're exciting. This is just a bad, bad team. And, you know, again, I'm not going to get into the whole uh, Shapiro and Atkins bashing stuff, but here's the <laughs> thing. I, no, I'm not, but here's the thing. Those guys, they have torn this thing down to the point now that they better know how to rebuild it. Because, you know, we look at these teams sometimes, Bob, and we say, oh, they're rebuilding. And we have this idea that, well, if you tear it down, automatically it's going to turn into the Houston Astros because of what happened with them. There's no automatic that you become a great team. No, but I guess there is a model. And you just actually pointed out a good team that the Houston Astros, uh, if I remember correctly, had three or four 50-win seasons. They, they were horrible. And they stripped it all down, and they were pretty forthcoming with their fan base that you know what we just we just can't compete at the level of the other teams with what they were. They tore it down. They started very young. They brought up some young players, um, and, and they've made some shrewd moves to become a very very competitive team. And then a couple of years later, they end up being a, a you know a team that's going to the postseason. 2017, they won 101 games. Uh, 2018, last year, they won you know almost 110, and they're a true contender for a World Series title. So, 
uh, I guess maybe. Like I mean, they were the laughing stock of the league. It was all it was horrible, and the Blue Jays weren't bad at that time. And going into Minute Maid Park was a bit of a joke. I mean, they would just the, the Blue Jays would blow them out. It was embarrassing. But you used the word that is the key word, which is shrewd. They were horrible. Houston was horrible, but they made smart moves that allowed them to get back into contention. My point is, just because you tear it down doesn't automatically mean that you become a contender in three years. You have to make those shrewd moves, and that is where Shapiro and Atkins are not really on the clock, but under the under the spotlight. They have to make those same kinds of shrewd moves, or else when you rip it apart like this, you could spend five years or six years wallowing around in the bottom if those moves are not shrewd. Well, I would think that they would be fired by that point if that if that's the way the direction of this team. I think the one thing they do have going for them, Scott, is the fact that they can brag about some of these young players in BGO um, and, and and you know Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in their first year. Um, they they do almost get a free pass, and they've got a couple of pitchers, Thornton, that's uh, showing some signs of being able to be you know a guy that can face major league uh, major league baseball um, hitters. Um, you're hoping and pining on that, and that's why I think, as much as I don't, I, I kind of struggle to say this because it's tough to say, but I think the administration do get a free pass this year. It's tough. To oh yeah, watch. no, no, that's fine. That, this know, year for sure. Yeah, I think there's a free pass. So when, it, when you know, going back to what we were talking about, shrewd moves. When you know, no matter how many wins this team has this year. What will those shrewd moves be? Because I don't think you're thinking, oh, my goodness. Because remember, they're in the American League East, which is you know one of the more difficult divisions mm-hmm. in all of baseball. So w- what moves do they make in the offseason to get them a little closer? Now, I'm not talking about blowing the bank and going out and getting top-name players. But what they've got some veterans, scrappy veterans right now. But I think in the offseason next year, going into 2020, that you've got to get some better veterans some teams that maybe get them into that 80 win, you know, area um, where, you know, where they're upsetting some teams here and there and they can regenerate that, that audience and stimulate their fan base with saying, Hey, we're making steps because I think Toronto uh, based on the Maple Leafs, they're a very apologetic, they're a very forgiving fan base. And if you show progress, I think people will start coming back to the ball yard. But it's got to be before next year because you've got two pitchers that you're probably going to want to trade. You better get something good for Stroman and Sanchez when you trade them. Don't you? There's been so many times in recent years where the Jays have traded guys away and you get back almost nothing as it turns out. A great, great point. And, and I think your, your big um, tool right now, or trade piece, would be Marcus Stroman right now. Ignore the 4-8 and eight record. The ERA is near 3 and he's competitive, and it could be, you really could make a case that in almost every start this year, he has had poor run support. Yeah. Yep. And so you're right. What will we get for him? Uh, is it, a, is it a, a veteran on the brink? Is it a, a couple of prospects that are, are you know, high-ranking in Major League Baseball? That, you know, the people, and none of these players are a guarantee. I think that's the, the tough part about getting prospects is nothing's a guarantee. Nothing so is a guarantee. You do have, you do have to uh, you know, some, acquire some pieces for some of your top-name players. You have to wonder, though. We gotta sw- I want to switch topics quickly, but you have to look at the, no- the people who are in the stands and think, you know, Rogers is a publicly traded company. 
they have to make profits. That's part of their mandate. Look at those attendance figures. Look at the TV figures and think, man, how many millions of dollars less are they making or losing right. this year compared to the glory years, even as recently as 2015 or 16, when they were getting a million plus fans a game on TV and a full house. It's uh, there is you got to know there's pressure to get this thing turned around and to do it pretty darn quickly. And, and I'm sure the Rogers people, the administration, they you know the top dogs up there know that what they're in for this year. But again, you know I'll, I'll keep going back to it is the fact that there's there's a t- there's a time limit yep. limit on a time limit on a rebuild. Absolutely, there is. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple things quickly. Brooke Henderson won her ninth tournament uh, golfer. For those who don't know, and I, I I hate to actually say that, but there are some people who don't know. Uh, where, where does she stand right now as far as best Canadian athletes? No, she came in and that's a great question, Scott, but I mean, I mean, I, I think generally when we, especially when we give out these year end awards, we do break it up into male and female. And right now I'm, I'm struggling to find, uh, a woman in all of sports right now, and I include hockey right now, that have a better upside right now in her career right now. Oh, no, there's nobody. Uh, and certainly no Canadian. She's, you know, she would be the number one Canadian female absolutely. athlete right now. I don't know that there's a male athlete in Canada who's as dominant as her right now. No, I mean, I mean, I think you could point to a Connor McDavid or someone like that, and it's easy to go to the hockey example right now, but I mean, Connor McDavid is a special athlete. But in terms of the women right now, I mean, it's just, I mean, her, where she's cresting to, um, I, you know, I think we all know um, Bob Weeks, the, the well-known golf mm-hmm. analyst, uh, you know, has projected that you know she's got nine tournament victories right now, and he's, you know, his, and I don't think he's a guy that just throws out numbers there, and I don't think he was too caught up in the moment, but he, in a, in a, in a sort of post-tournament uh, press conference, uh, said that he could see her multiplying her victories of nine right now by four when it's all said and done. Well, she's what twenty-one now. She's 21 years old and now, has nine victories. Girls, women, but I mean, gir- I say girls because they do start as girls. Girls obviously land on the pro tour earlier. They mature earlier. They get started earlier. The numbers are ahead of what the guys would be at this point. But yep. but even if even if she were to double this, you know, 18 tournament victories is a pretty amazing career. Even I, if, I, And that's, lo- you know what, Scott? I, and I have to agree with Bob. I, I, I think that's a low-ball number. Oh, I would think so. It. I would think so the way she's going. But as I say, even even if you were to say it's only 18, even look, even if she blew out her shoulder today and couldn't golf anymore, nine sure. is a pretty imp- impressive career for sure. Uh, other thing before I let you go, Babe Ruth jersey just sold at auction this week. It's $5.64 for a jersey worn by Babe Ruth. <laughs> So I didn't give you any warning on this. So I'm asking you cold. If you could find, if you could have cost aside, doesn't matter what the cost is. If you could have any one piece of sports memorabilia, oh. what would you want? What from what athlete would you want some piece of memorabilia? Let's put it that way. Oh, boy, oh Scott, that's so hard. I think you know what would be really really cool, and I'm going a little bit further back here is that Muhammad Ali in his heyday before I do believe it was when he had when he came back um after the Vietnam War stuff after the three and a half years of persecution not having a boxing license for, you know for taking a stance against the fighting not fighting in Vietnam and when he fought Joe Frazier for the heavyweight title uh Elvis Presley had this gown made for him and one of those robes that you walk into 
that had diamond studded, and I think it had the champ on the back of it. And it's a, it is such an iconic piece. I don't even know who knows or who has it. Uh, it maybe it's in you know the Muhammad Ali Museum in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. But just a, a, an unbelievable piece of memorabilia, memorabilia that you could look at and go, wow, like given, you know, made up but, and given to, you know, the, arguably the greatest man in sport by one of the, you know, rock and roll's greatest icons. So you're saying that Elvis was the Drake of his day. <laughs> Hanging out with the athletes, <laughs> glomping on to their success. You're the big Elvis fan. Uh, uh, well, I, you know, I like Elvis. I would, you know, one of the things, and this is very strange. I was trying to think when I was when I was thinking about this. I was trying to think what would be the coolest, most unusual, most talking point. Because again, I wasn't just trying to look at b- money and what was the most valuable. I would think that the chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear that Mike Tyson bit oh, off. Oh, you're a sick man. No, I'm saying as far as if you want to have a talking point piece of sports memorabilia. And you put that in a little cup on your dining room table or your family room table when people are sitting around having a coffee. That would spur conversation. I don't know who has that. I know that Uh, I read it sometime. There was a guy who has it and he's got it in a little thing of formaldehyde. I I swear, I swear I read this. I was like, you know what? I think I have to squash Scott's dream here. Maybe it was in a couple of pieces because I, because I do believe a piece was retrieved and upon putting back his ear, that was used. Oh, maybe. Okay. All right. Well, so maybe there is a chunk out there in a in a in a in a in a what? What would it be, Scott? In a glass in a glass case? In a little formaldehyde <laughs> vial <laughs> that you someone's wearing as a necklace. What's that on your neck? Is that your child's umbilical cord? That's lovely. No, it's Evander Holyfield's ear. Yeah. Or it's in a glass case with like a you know a gold badge on it that says you know Evander's ear. Thanks, Mike. There's, uh, you know, there are, there, there are so many things that I, you know, that anyone who likes sports would like to get their hands on. I, I, I tried to think of this and it was an unfair question to ask you on the spot because I went through and spent about half an hour thinking about this through the day today. Cause you, you, cause I'm going to tell you something, Scott, you just went real deep. Well, I could not, I couldn't think of what the thing would be. I mean, my hero, I was talking about this on the show the other day when we had Reggie Leach on, my hero as a kid was Bernie Perrot. Yeah, was was Bernie Perrant. He was my all-time hero. I played goal. I was a bad goalie, but I loved Bernie Perrant. Uh, and so if I could have got Bernie Perrant's sweater or his mask or something, that to me, I don't know where that would stand in the value rankings, but that to me would be the coolest thing that I could ever get my hands on. But Why did the Maple Leafs trade him? Because they had Dunk Wilson and Doug Favelle, and they thought they had good goaltending, and why not? guess that turned out well. Well, the two of them didn't quite turn out to be Bernie Perrant. <laughs> they like were every, just, just like every, missed it by that much. Like every other move Harold Ballard made at the time. Uh, uh, Bob O'Neill from CHCH, you can watch him tonight on CHCH. He'll be doing the news, he'll be doing the sports, he'll be doing the weather, he'll be doing fashion, he'll be doing travel, he'll be doing <laughs> your shopping correspondent. He'll be doing everything. Just tune in for the Bubba Hour at 11 o'clock tonight. Always appreciate the time. They try to do the best they can. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.